So there were a number of really awkward things about a preaching class in seminary. The height of the awkwardness was the 15-minute Shark Tank moment at the end of the course, where all of the newly minted preachers were asked to deliver a 15-minute sermon to an audience who was going to critique their preaching. My critiques boiled down to two. The first is that I, I didn't dress the part. Perhaps not much has changed uh, since then. Uh, the second was a phrase I used in the sermon. I was attempting, if you can call anything in 15 minutes a sermon, I was attempting in the sermonette to apply it to my listeners, and I made reference to them as preacher boys. And one of the listeners critiqued, wrote on my evaluation, I don't like you calling me a preacher boy. Apparently, and this was unbeknownst to me, that term has like a pejorative jab to it, that to call someone a preacher boy is like a, a wannabe, somebody that, uh, that hasn't yet arrived, somebody that flaunts something exterior but doesn't have the interior to back it up. Well, perhaps preacher boy doesn't have the stigma that, uh, that it had for that young man, but I guarantee you this idea does, the idea of holiness, uh, particularly, um, think about the way that we would use that term, like a, a, a holy roller, somebody that's holier than thou. Question for you, what comes to mind when I say someone's holy? What do, what do holy people look like? What, what, do they, what do they do? What images come to your mind? Perhaps one of the most common would be that of kind of a, a monastic bent, Someone pictured uh, in these slides. Someone, uh, positively we might say separate, uh, disciplined. But for many, that image denotes something somewhat odd, right? They're not likely the kind of people that you want to get close to or are going to be good at, say, casual conversation over a ball game. Or maybe the image that comes to mind would be something a bit more elevated, something Pope-like, ornamental, external, but in a very similar way, unapproachable. This is reserved for the elites of the elite. Or maybe a better image for some of us would be that of a, a grandparent. Weathered, wise, honorable, distinct, what comes to mind when you think of holiness? Because what comes to mind when, what came to mind when the people in Jesus' day thought of holiness, an, an idea that's connected to the notion of the Messiah or the Christ. He would, would be the set-apart one, the distinct one, the one on whom God's favor rested in a unique and superior way. When the Messiah comes, or so it was thought, his holiness is going to be evident. It's going to be visible. And the real challenge that Luke is going to introduce us to, if you have your Bible, you can open to Luke 5. The real challenge that we're going to be introduced to is that Jesus comes on the scene and his holiness does not fit the mental frame that the people have. It's not what they think the Messiah is going to be. And specifically, this makes matters worse, it's not going to be who the religious experts, the teachers of the law, the, the elites uh, think. It's not the picture that's going to come to mind. Jesus doesn't fit their box of what holy people do. And even worse, 
He's going to claim to be God. He's going to claim to be definitional of holiness. And it's this reality that's ultimately going to get him killed. This reality of Jesus not fitting the box of holiness is perhaps uh, most evident in our text this morning from Luke 5, verses 27 to 39. Three simple points that will frame our sermon, and hopefully we'll spend the majority of our time discussing some application at the end. Three points that are evident from this text. First, Jesus pursues sinners. Second, Jesus prioritizes repentance. And third, Jesus presses to the heart. You like my, this is going back to my preacher days, you like my alliteration there, worked hard on it, uh, just so I would pass the 15-minute shark tank of Southern Baptist preachers. Jesus pursues sinners. We're in a long line of just quick scenes that Luke is tracing of Jesus' early ministry, beginning reading in verse 27. Uh, We pick up the story. After this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi, and he was sitting at his tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him, and Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. And now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with him. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Now, if you've been with us in the weeks leading up, you're seeing some very common patterns, right, in these stories. They, they follow a very similar script. This one's really tight and condensed. What we see earlier in the chapter, Jesus beginning to assemble uh, these early followers. And if you notice, just if you haven't even been with us, if you just kind of let your eyes scan Luke 5, you notice that these are a misfit lot that he's gathering. These are social outcasts. Think uh, the fishermen, just kind of the margins of society, just the grunt workers of the day. Lepers, very clearly socially outcast. In fact, having to maintain physical distance from society as a whole. Paralytics, the kind of people that only take, they don't give. And here we come to a group that Uh, might not fit the mold of that, at least as we read, a tax collector. That seems to be an upstanding vocation. But tax collectors clearly fit the pattern in Jesus' day of social outcast, working on behalf of the ruling powers, enacting unjust taxes, and most often lining their own pockets with what they would take. They were stigmatized just like the rest of the groups that we find in Luke chapter 5. And culturally, the reality is you you avoid these kind of people. Uh, they're evil. They're untrustworthy. They have stigma attached to them, so you stay away. Even normal people avoid these kind of people. So then, multiply that exponentially. Holy people surely avoid these kind of people, right? Pious, holy people don't mix with the riffraff of society. You've got an either-or contrast that's introduced. Either I mix it up with this group and compromise my holiness, or I stay set apart and distinct and maintain my holy status. But Jesus, his holiness sends him into these relationships. He doesn't merely forgive them and invite them to follow him, but he associates himself with the societally marginalized. Think of the leper. Think of what happens when a Messiah touches you. 
This is a reality you haven't experienced. You haven't had fellowship with the rest of society, much less the one who is setting himself out to be the definition of holiness. And this one comes. Well, Jesus sees this one, Levi, a tax collector, calls him. Luke doubly makes the point that he's sitting at his tax office when he does this. And we get just a really, I mean, it almost reads robotically, doesn't it? Verse 27 to 28. Calls, he says, follow me. And like Peter, Levi leaves everything and follows him. The emphasis on this story is actually what comes. It's not on the following nature of verse 28, but it's on what follows in verse 29. Because this dude throws a party. And when he throws a party, who comes? Well, it's all his socially outcast friends. And who shows up at the party? The Holy One. The one who you would not assume would mix it up with these kind of people. The one you would assume would stand at a distance and say, if you want, you come over here where I am. But we see in this story, the Holy One associating himself with the scoundrels, the others, the outcast. Jesus conscientiously makes effort to associate with those who are on the outsides, and more specifically, those who are on the outsides on the margins. This association is going to be the common point of critique that Jesus is going to face throughout the rest of Luke. If you trace with us through this series, you're going to see it at least six times that other people are going to point to him, and what's going to be critiqued is his association with people who are different. Why are you doing this? The word that's used here is the, the same grumbling word that in the Old Testament was used in reference to the Israelites in the wilderness. They get out and they grumble against God. At least we had food to eat back there. Now we have the people of this day saying, what are you doing? This is a critique of God. What are you doing? And the critique, kind of the emphasis here, why are you with them holy and other, and then why are you with them? Like, why are you eating and drinking? Why are you enjoying fellowship with these people? Tell, table fellowship, you know anything about this culture, you know table fellowship, everything revolves around eating and drinking. This is a sign of significant sign of hospitality. What are you doing? Surely, pious people, if they were going to associate with them, would lecture at them from a distance. You wouldn't have table fellowship with them. And what's Jesus' conclusion? Verse 31. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. The point's real simple. The, the, this is uh, donuts down to the bottom shelf. These are the type of people who need me. The point isn't that tax collectors and Pharisees are healthy, but that they're unwilling to admit their sickness. These are the kind of people that, that own the reality of their brokenness, and these are the kind of people that I can actually help. But then I want you to notice how uh, these two passages are, are butted up together in verse 31. Jesus pursues sinners. Sermon, prayer, go, we're done. That's not sufficient because of what happens in 32. I've, come to call, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So second big idea. Jesus prioritizes repentance. So the who in contrast here in verse 32, righteous versus sinners. 
And what will sinners do that the righteous will not? They will repent. So what am I doing as the great physician? I'm coming to call sinners to repentance. Now, a bit of work there. That's not a common word that we use in our English language, the language of repentance. But think about what uh, a notion of repentance implies. It necessitates that I acknowledge there's a standard. Here, a clear standard set by God's holiness. There's a clear standard. I don't meet that standard, and something has to change for me to meet that standard. So there's a lot kind of bubbling beneath the surface of the language of repentance, and this, again, is going to be a Luke theme for us. What happens when people meet Jesus, they repent. They see a holy standard, they see they don't measure up, and they change. They acknowledge the standard, the awareness of a lack of meeting the standard, and confession, brokenness of sin, and a turn from that. The physician imagery is really good here. What is, what is going to a physician necessitate? It necessitates an admission that you're sick. An ownership of the fact that you need help from an external source. And the confession that this solution's got to come from outside of me. And so, in verse 32, Jesus is able to marry these twin realities of pursuit of sinners and pursuit being association with them, table fellowship with them, and a prioritization of saying something has to change about you. This is not good old boy hangout club. This is a weird combination that, frankly, we don't have many categories for in American culture. Sinners are drawn to Jesus, and yet he can clearly call them to repentance. I think the language in John 1:14 is really helpful to us when we're introduced to Jesus at the start of John's gospel. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is the only son of the Father, and he's full of, full capacity of, twin virtues that seem to be either or, right? He's full of grace and truth. He's the perfect blend of table association with sinners and a high moral standard of God's objective mark and your need for repentance. We're told in our culture every day that this is impossible. You can't actually love someone and say that their behavior is wrong. And I say, folly. Jesus clearly did. Now granted, he was an equal opportunity offender to notorious sinners and notorious saints. Yet, he was able to hold forth God's objective standard and call sinners to repentance. More on this in a bit. Thirdly, Jesus presses to the heart. Verse 33. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often, and they say prayers. And those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom's with them, can you? Time's going to come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And then he told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, it's going to tear the new, and also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wineskins into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will spill, and the skins will be ruined. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. No one, after drinking old wine, wants new, because he says... 
the old is better. Now, this is the real crescendo of this package for us here. This is really what it's building to, this paragraph. Uh, the issue is that they take issue with Jesus. Again, that he's not what the, the Messiah that they expect. He's not doing what Messiahs are supposed to do. So he says, hey, dude, what's going on? You're claiming to do things that only the Messiah can do, and you're actually doing, like, we're seeing this played out in front of us, these signs and wonders. Yet you don't fit our mold of outward signs. Now, fasting, we're not seeing you offer the prayers in the same rhythm that we've been trained and taught we're supposed to do. All of these good things that are happening externally, and you're not keeping the rhythms that we were trained in in Judaism. And this is perhaps the classic out-of-context passage. New wine and old wine skins. We don't sing hymns and go to Sunday school anymore because we need some new wine. We can't have old wine skins. That's not the point. Jesus is arguing here that a new age has dawned. The Messiah is here. And the Mosaic law and all its applications are insufficient to hold the new wine of a new Messiah. This is a once-for-all reality at the coming of Jesus. This is not logic for constant change, old is bad and new is better, but rather Jesus is holding out the reality that the thing you've been looking for is here. I'm here. All those things that you've been doing to point to, it's here, and you're clinging to the things, and you're missing the, the Messiah. So he makes a point using three just short parables. I mean, parables is interesting language here because we normally think of a more spelled-out story. But it's just three short images. A new patch over old material. Before, you know, whatever the clothing company is of our day that made this cool, there's all kinds of problems with that. The new material tears the old material. And the new material doesn't match. It just looks silly. It's going to burst. The patch that's supposed to fix the garment ends up ruining both of them. New wine and old wine skins. This is one that for most of us we don't have context for. Old wine skins that would have hardened. You put new wine in there, it's going to ferment, and what's going to happen? The skin's going to, to break. So you lose both. You lose the new wine, and you lose the old wineskin holder. It's going to be ruined. And then as a warning, image three, he contrasts old wine with new, saying some are going to be satisfied with the wine that they've been drinking, and they're not going to want new. They're going to say the, the old is, is better. So he's holding himself out as the Messiah and saying, don't miss me for all of these other externals. You're fasting because you're longing for a Messiah. You're praying that God would send his Messiah. Now the Messiah is here. So embrace love and follow the Messiah. Don't cling to your outward signs. Now, here's the challenge. There's not a so now in this passage. There's not a clear, like, summary statement. It just kind of ends. Now, it's pitted. We're, we're doing something that's a little bit abstract and preaching these segments because it's packaged in a larger book, and Luke's trying to make a coherent point overall. And so we don't, we don't want to try to force a so that into a text that doesn't have a so that. 
But if we think about the larger context of the book of Luke, uh, we see that he's writing so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so uh, for me, the so what of this passage, I think there are, there are two um, specific so what's from this text. And as I was thinking this week, I, my fear was if I tried to do both, I wouldn't do either of them justice. So what I, I'm going to make a choice, and this may be the wrong choice, but I'm going to choose to focus on application number two and just briefly put my toe in the water of application number one. The main theme, this application number one, is going to be teased out. Donnie did it last week. Uh, other sermons that are coming will do this because it's the overarching point of the book is that we would embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And so a clear point of application for us still to this day is people who embrace outward forms of religion or religiosity and miss Jesus. In the same way as was true in Jesus' day, there are people who cling to outward forms of religion and miss the beauty of worship of the Son of God. In fact, this is a dire warning that Jesus is going to give on the last day. There are going to be those that claim, we did all this outward stuff, and what's Jesus' response? But you didn't, we didn't know one another. We weren't connected. Though the new wineskin is not new in our day, the same pattern of clinging to old outward forms and missing the Messiah is still a regular and present danger in the church. But I think there's another so what connected to God's mission. Remember what Luke is saying in all of these follow me calls uh, that we find throughout Luke 5. He says, follow me, and uh, I can't remember when I preached last, two weeks ago perhaps, uh, the call was follow me and what are you going to become? You're going to become fishers of men. So what do you see me doing, you're also going to do. Jesus makes this point consistently throughout the Gospels. I borrow a passage from Matthew's Gospel and John's Gospel to uh, place these side by side. First in John 8, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And then in Matthew 5, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you're the light of the world. So the marrying of what we see Jesus do and what we would see his followers do would be a clear implication of the overall gospel stories. John 20 ends this way, kind of the summary great commission of John's gospel. As the Father has sent me into the world, so I'm going to send my people into the world. So I think a second so what of this text is that Jesus models for us what a life committed to his mission should look like. We see very clearly here a model for holy followers of Jesus today. And what I want to attempt to do is to apply this text to you using three categories, three language descriptions. The language of must, the language of should, and the language of can. Must, should, and can. When I use those terms, here's, here's what I'm going to press. Uh, I want to apply Jesus' mission to our mission. First, must. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, you and I are biblically bound to do this. Or said more negatively, to not do this would be to sin. Okay? 
Second language would be that of should. Wisdom suggests that these practices will help you do the must. So we don't have chapter and verse that you have to do this, but we would see examples from Scripture and examples from the history of the people of God that would suggest by doing this, you're going to be better able to apply the must that you have to do. And then lastly, the language of can. Different personalities at different seasons of life might do these things. Different personalities at different seasons of life might do these things, might find them helpful. I think there's great danger in mixing up the must, shoulds, and cans in sermon application. It's easy to force a can in the, where a must is or to minimize a must and place it in the language of shoulds. And what you're going to see me do as we uh, talk through these just very briefly is to attempt to connect the three main points of our sermon uh, to this application. Jesus pursues sinners. Jesus prioritizes repentance, and Jesus presses beyond the external forms to the heart. Some of you know that I'm Moonlight as a teacher, uh, teach the master's classes, and uh, the hardest thing about teaching is uh, creating syllabus uh, for the classes, and you have these student learning objectives. Some of you are pro teachers, so I'm t- student learning objectives, and then the task is to match the objective to the assignment so that it's clear I'm not making this assignment up and thin air, but I'm actually connecting it to the goal of this class. Well, that's what I'm going to attempt to do in a sermon. I want to connect the points of the sermon to my assignments for you in a way that have hopefully one-to-one correspondence. So must, what must you do if you want to follow God in his mission? First, you must cultivate genuine friendships with people who are far from God. You must cultivate genuine friendships with people who are far from God. Jesus pursues sinners. If you want to live like Jesus, you cannot be a holy recluse. Simply can't do it. You have to have some uncomfortable relationships with people who are far from God but close to you. Secondly, you must... Hold out God's clear standard, Jesus' finished work, and the necessity of repentance. Jesus prioritizes repentance. You cannot actively, consistently engage in those relationships in such a way that assumes people can live however they want, or that assumes that by engaging in the relationship, you're indulging behavior that is clearly in opposition to God's clear moral standard. You can't water down truth for the sake of relationship. And thirdly, you must seek to love and worship Jesus yourself, not merely go through the religious motions. You've got to be the kind of person personally that prioritizes Jesus and not external religious forms. I think this is a biblical mandate, and it's practically a necessity if you're going to live this way. Because people who are far from God but close to you are going to see right through your fake religious forms. Particularly if you get them into some table fellowship. So you got to actually love Jesus. What should you do? What should you do? First, 
you should use hospitality as a way of inviting other people into relationship. I don't think it's a mistake that table fellowship is the picture here, eating and drinking. While it's not the same in our culture, uh, there are some distinctions with first century culture, to invite someone else around your table is a sign of warmth, is a sign of welcome. So the press for all of us is if we were just to assess your dinner table over the last quarter, would it look like you actually pursued sinners? Secondly, you should work to grow in your ability to say hard things nicely. Uh, Work to grow in your ability to say hard truth in winsome ways. And frankly, um, this requires more than your thumb. In fact, I think it's virtually impossible to do with your thumb and your screen. It requires some table conversation where you develop some fluency in the ability to hold out God's objective standard without being a jerk. And we're just not great at that, quite frankly. I'm not great at that. Thirdly, you should share how God is changing your heart and not just your behavior. You should share. You should get really fluent in sharing how Jesus is changing you and not merely the forms of religion Uh, that help you, hopefully help you worship Jesus. It's great that you come to church. It's great that you prioritize small group. It's great that you pray. It's great that you have your Bible at your desk, whatever the form is. Those are good things. We would not want to minimize that. But that we would do more than merely embrace the form, that we would be really good at speaking of why Jesus matters. Why is Jesus good news to you? And then lastly, what are the cans? What could you do? Well, number one, you can take a meal to the homeless. You can volunteer at a crisis pregnancy center. You can foster a teenager. You can intentionally rent a room in your home to someone who is far from God. And the list could go on and on and on and on. Remember, can is different personalities, different gifts, different life seasons. Find these practices helpful. Jesus pursues sinners. That's going to look different for a 42-year-old with five kids than it looks for some of you uh, who are single just out of college. There's just more flexibility. I don't know what the can is for you, but you got to do something. Secondly, you can actively cultivate a relationship with someone who once sinned like the person you're trying to love. Let me explain that because that doesn't make sense in writing, but it makes sense in my brain. One of the ways that I found help and saying hard things nicely is to cultivate a genuine relationship with someone who once sinned like the person that I'm now trying to relate to. So let's take a compromise of sexual ethics as an example of that. Rather than merely reading books at a distance of people whose lives have been transformed, do you actually know a Christian who once was indulging in wayward sexual practices, and Jesus has changed them, saved them, converted them, what did it look like for that person to be at your dinner table as a means of saying, help me know how to winsomely relate to sinners and hold out God's truth? Thirdly, you can share a Bible, a scripture passage, a book, a podcast, a sermon, anything else that's encouraged or pointed you to worship. 
Jesus presses to the heart. These are great things. Not necessarily great things to leave the track on the back of the urinal. Great things to, in the context of genuine relationship, say, hey, we were talking about this, and this sermon was an encouragement to me. We're talking, here's a, here's a book, here's Prodigal God by Keller, and I found this book incredibly helpful in helping me, right? See what I'm saying? Can do all sorts of things to take good, honest truth and get them in the hands of people that you are trying to serve. Summary, conclusion. For Jesus, holiness is connected to mission. It is not a precursor to mission or pitted against mission. To be a holy person is to join God in his mission in the world. And what form did that mission take? Pursuing sinners, calling sinners to repentance, and modeling that genuine repentance from your heart. That's why the monthly practice of taking the Lord's Supper is a good reminder for us. It reminds us, and just holding these elements is a symbol of what Jesus did, it reminds us that you're here because Jesus pursued a sinner. Um, you're here, if you're in Christ, you're, you're here because you repented of your sins. You turned from them and placed your saving faith in Christ. And you're receiving these elements not as an outward form of religion. We're not like coming down to the table and flaunting them back to our seats. Look what I'm doing. No. It's saying something about what's happening in our hearts. I'm testifying to what Jesus has done, and this is good for me. So in just a moment, the servers are going to distribute the elements of the Lord's Supper. I want you to hold them just as you get them. We'll receive these elements together. And as they're being passed, I want you to do a bit of introspection. First, if you're not in Christ, if you're not a sinner who's repented and trusted in Jesus, please pass on these elements. There are dire warnings in the scriptures of taking these elements uh, in an unseemly, unfit way. So would you pass on these and take Jesus? Would you lean over maybe to somebody who's pursuing a sinner, like a neighbor who's invited you to church? And say, hey, can we, can we talk or pray? Or I've got some questions about. Be awesome. There are also a lot of warnings in the scriptures about believers taking these elements without some consideration. And the consideration for us this moment, this morning is, what involvement are you playing in God's mission? Uh, are you selfishly hoarding a God who pursued you, granted you repentance, and has changed your heart? Or are you living on that mission? So as you receive the elements, hold them, prayerfully consider your role in God's mission, and in a couple of minutes, we'll take and receive the elements together. Servers, if you would come and grab uh, the elements and begin to distribute them uh, for the rest of the congregation, if you would bow and reflect in prayer uh, as the elements are distributed. Thank you.